Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trip into baseball's past, one conversation at a time. First, if this is your first time in, let me thank you for not only finding us, but for also taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you hear enough today to come back, take a listen to previous episodes, and become a subscriber, which will ensure you get an alert every time a new one becomes available. For the regulars, Thank you for coming back and really appreciate any and all of you who have helped spread the word about what's going on here in our little piece of the podcast world. A quick what and why hardball is and why this week's episode is very different than the first 21. This podcast was born from a want to speak to some of the best to ever play the game and to find others whose names you might not know, but whose stories needed to be heard to stitch together the game's history. Firsthand accounts, separating fact from fiction, stories almost lost forever, the wins, but also the losses, an audio history of the game, but at times, more importantly, our country's history. Through baseball and these men, a clearer picture of what was going on in the world beyond a ballpark and a playing field, and how the evolution of the game and the business of the game has led us to the point we are at today. As the send button was hit to upload this episode, we are still awaiting the fate of the 2020 baseball season, as both MLB, the owners and commissioner, and the players and their executive director Fight in front of the children in the middle of Times Square for all of us to see and hear. Which brings us to today's guest and why I pulled this one out of the blue bag, literally, by the way, a blue bag full of conversations accumulated over close to 20 years on something called mini discs, which are so old school that I had to go to eBay to buy a player so that I could listen to them. Marvin Miller became the first executive director of the Players Association in 1966, and it is not an exaggeration to say that nothing was ever the same in not just baseball, but in all of professional sports. For background, much needed before you hear our conversation, Miller's business background came from both the United Auto Workers and, more importantly, as principal economic advisor to the president of the United Steelworkers, which meant, of course, he took part in the union's contract negotiations. That resume would explain why the then 20-team owners in Major League Baseball in 1966 tried to derail his campaign to take over an association that existed in name only. They did not want to deal with this guy. So the owner's message to players was that if elected, Miller would lead them down a road of work stoppages, strikes, and inability to feed their families as they stayed away from the game and lost paychecks. They more than indicated that corruption, the mob, would be who they would be sleeping with, and there would be no turning back after that. You will hear Marvin Miller talk about the path to his election. He won the player vote, by the way, 489 to 136, 
and what he quietly, and that needs to be noted, because even 35 years after his win in 1966, this conversation took place in 2001, which is 19 years after his last day officially on the job in 1982, Marvin Miller's tone and demeanor is important. Measured, firm, straightforward, a listener, a conversationalist even. No grandiose, no bravado. He was never a fire and brimstone Jimmy Hoffa bully type personality that his background might suggest or the owners wanted players to believe in. But don't let that fool you. He carried the big bat. He just didn't pull it out for show. He would just lay it on the table and let the other side decide if he needed to swing it. And that served him and more importantly the players well. And wait for it, while they would never say it out loud, and evidenced by the fact that baseball is an $11 billion a year business and average franchise values have flown past $1 billion each, serve the owners perhaps even better. If you think that the fight was about salary, you would only be partially correct. Marvin will explain. What kind of shape financially were the players in? Wait until you hear what was in their association bank account. And much more, including a point-counterpoint, I do use the word Satan, by the way, that led to a few things that go beyond the day we taped this. Kurt Flood, Free Agency, Bowie Kuhn, and more. You will hear at the end of this conversation, Marvin asked me for a copy of it. He called me a little over a week after we taped on a landline in my home upon receiving both a cassette and CD of it. He told me he really appreciated the back and forth and the preparedness and that he thought I should know he hadn't done many of these that gave him breathing room while being challenged. That led to a few follow-up conversations between us. And while I thoroughly enjoyed a continued baseball relationship, boy, do I wish we had done it on Mike. He told me of the player boycott of the Topps Card Company in 1968 to stop giving them free license for likeness and image. Brilliant and profitable. We spoke further about the Hall of Fame, and you need to know that he wasn't bitter about not being in. I will give my two cents on that in a second and go 28 steps further about his rightful place in sports history as well. But you do need to know this. He wrote a letter to Jack O'Connell, longtime Baseball Writer Association member, who later became an integral figure in many different committees that voted on Hall of Fame elections in 2008 that asked to be left off any future ballot for consideration. Again, not out of anger, but because it just didn't matter anymore. He never took the job with an eye to the Hall to begin with. Marvin Miller was elected for induction this past offseason after seven no's. His wishes denied by the Hall, he was on record for years before his passing in 2012 that his family not attend if it ever happened. Again, not out of bitterness, but out of it just isn't very important. So here is what I believe. The fact that it took until 2020 for his election into the Hall of Fame is beyond ridiculous. I said it before this day in 2001, and I said it whenever the subject has come up. Marvin Miller is one of the four or five most important people in sports history. You can hate the fact that he even existed. You can believe he ruined baseball and ultimately all of sports. I believe you would be completely short-sighted in that thought, but it's yours, and I'm sure, for what you believe are sound reasons. My statement is this. Marvin Miller should be in every sports Hall of Fame. There isn't a player in any sport, and I will include college athletes now, as they have finally seen the light of what a unified player front can do to push change forward, who shouldn't know his name and his place. He is on a Chris Domino less than two handfuls list of know your history and pay the proper respect and say thank you every time you look around because some of what you have comes from his ability to see the financial potential that existed in baseball and now we find beyond. This episode is different and timely and important because sometimes you have to know the history to understand the present. For your consideration, Marvin Miller. Just when baseball owners thought it was safe to go back into the court, 
they met a shark and Marvin Miller, the players' union chief who finally took down baseball's reserve clause 96 years after National League owners created it to keep down salaries. Now, with free agency, could the first million-dollar-a-year player be on the way? In 1970, I hit 316, I won a gold glove, I led the league in doubles, I led the league in runs scored. Well, I walk in and negotiate my contract, and the first thing they say to me is, you dropped 32 points in your batting average. We want you to take a cut. The owners uh, kept telling players uh, from time immemorial, you are the luckiest people on the face of the earth. You play a game for a living. All players were among the most exploited people in the land. Was there any problem over the contract, any long-term negotiation? No, I just uh, walked into his office and he told me how much he was going to give me and I said, well, I me. Tonight on the inaugural Hardball, I am joined by the man who some have claimed to be the most influential man in the history of baseball. And boy, looking at some of the history that we will be talking about in a few minutes, it might be hard to argue that fact. He is Marvin Miller. Mr. Miller, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Mr. Miller, of course, 1966, you take over as the executive director of the Players Association. But one of the things that I read was, did, is it true that two other people had turned the job down before you actually accepted it? <laughs> had you ever heard that before? Uh, well, I, I've heard that uh, uh, Richard Nixon was approached, but not about this job. Richard Nixon was uh, approached to be general counsel, not executive director. Okay. Um, there were, I don't know, five, six candidates mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, the players had created a search committee consisting of... Uh, Robin Roberts, Jim Bunning, and Harvey Keene, three superstar ballplayers. And they had interviewed uh, either five or six people uh, before they brought their recommendations back to the uh, group of, of uh, elected player representatives. Um, but um, they had offered the job at one point to uh, Bob Cannon, uh, who was a, uh, a judge in a minor court in, in uh, Milwaukee who had been the so-called player's legal advisor for a number of years, about six years at that point. And uh, he didn't turn the job down. Uh, that's, that's a, a misnomer. Mm -hmm. um, but what he did after they had indicated that they uh, would approve him he set up some new conditions. He didn't want to leave Milwaukee, and so he wanted the players to uh, have their office either in Chicago or Milwaukee rather than New York. And his other condition was that they establish a, a pension plan for him, which I think was a perfectly reasonable request, except that he hadn't uh, indicated that before. <laughs> before. And uh, he offended uh, a group of players, including his uh, most important backer, who was uh, Bob Friend, uh, a pitcher in the Pirates at the time. And uh, and so they rejected him. He didn't. He didn't turn it down. He he set up conditions which they would not accept. Now, why in 1966 was the executive director's position a new position, or why did baseball? Why did that group of players decide that they needed somebody else doing more? Well, it was a brand new position that they were creating. Um, the the, the so-called Players Association had been in existence for, oh, I don't know, uh, 
dozen years at that point. And it had never been uh, a real organization. It existed on paper. Uh, it had never had an office of its own. It had never had an employee of its own. Uh, it, it never never functioned. And uh, what they decided at that point, that they needed something different. And, uh, uh, you know, they had various ideas about what was needed, but they felt, uh, as a start, they needed somebody who was experienced in, in organization, somebody who knew something about pensions, somebody who knew something about uh, labor relations and collective bargaining. And uh, uh, <laughs> they began looking for someone that fit that bill. And the one thing when you talk about what they were, just basically names on paper, that's not really financially beneficial to anybody. I'm assuming when you took over, you might be able to tell me what kind of financial stability or instability were we talking about at that point? <laughs> well, as I said, we, they were, we were talking about an organization with neither an office nor employees, <laughs> and uh, they had a bank account, which I wrote about it in my book. I've forgotten the amount, but it was some <laughs> trivial amount, uh, you know, like $100, $200. And... Uh, no other assets. They had uh, uh, an old file cabinet, which was kept in, a, in a, uh, uh, an office of somebody who was known as an agent. Uh, he wasn't an agent as we know agents now. He he actually uh, arranged for uh, commercial appearances for players, mm -hmm. and he had an office in the Biltmore Hotel in New York City. And he served as a kind of unofficial clerk uh, to uh, Cannon, who, who was the legal advisor. Uh, and and uh, in, in this uh, battered old file cabinet were whatever records they had, which uh, wasn't very much. And uh, there were no asset, other assets or resources of any kind. Now, when you take over in 66, uh, if anybody knows a little bit about baseball history, because a lot of things will be changed during your tenure, uh, players were not really in a position to talk, ask, demand, anything at that point. Give me an example of some of the things that players today and we as fans might take for granted as just being there for all time. Uh-huh. Well, for, at that point in time, for uh, about 70, 80 years leading up to 1966, uh, players were pieces of property. They were owned by the club that had originally signed them, uh, unless they had been traded or sold for cash, uh, literally. Uh, they had no options of their own. Uh, they had to accept whatever conditions were offered to them. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, if I can interrupt for a second, one-year contracts was obviously the norm, and when people think one-year contract, again, our perception today is, well, then sell you where someplace else. But it was understood and probably written that the owners then had the right to say yes or no to the next contract. You will play for me or you will not. That's right. Uh, uh, the owner's interpretation of the contract, which they themselves and their lawyers had written uh, many years before, their interpretation was that they owned the player for life with one-year uh, consecutive contracts uh, with a renewal clause. The renewal clause gave the club the right to renew it for an additional year without the player's signature. 
In other words, when they made an offer to the player, he didn't have to sign it. Uh, he could object, he could hold out, etc. But the club had the right to renew it without him. And no one could go home and say, well, now what I want to do is I want to go to Pittsburgh. I want to go to <laughs> Chicago. I want to go where I want to go. That was not in existence. That's right. When when this happened and the player was not was not happy with uh, what they were offering him, uh, his option was he could become a doctor, <laughs> he could become a truck driver, he could become an engineer, but the one thing he could not do was play professional baseball anywhere in the entire world, not in the major leagues. Not in the minor leagues, not in the United States, not Canada, not Mexico, not Venezuela, not Puerto Rico, not not anywhere in the Caribbean, not Japan. Uh, he was effectively blacklisted from ever playing ball for money again. I am joined tonight by Marvin Miller, the executive director who took over in 1966, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the changes that were made. Now, a lot of people, Mr. Miller, perhaps have a misperception about what it was Kurt Flood was actually fighting for, and we'll talk about Mr. Flood in particular in a second. But why don't you straighten out, because I, I, I would think you might agree the misperception was that people think that Kurt Flood wanted to go someplace else, but that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> no, Kurt Flood wanted to stay where he was. Right. <laughs> uh, Flood had uh, come up to the majors with, I believe, Cincinnati, uh, or maybe Chicago, and very early had been uh, traded um, to the St. Louis organization. And his entire major league career, really, about 12, 13 years, was with the St. Louis Cardinals. And it wasn't just that he played for them. Uh, he had moved his family to St. Louis from uh, the West Coast. He had established a, a, uh, a private business. He was a talented portrait painter. And he had established uh, his, his office there. And, uh, you know, he was part of the community and, and, and lived there. And, and one day, as he describes it, uh, he got a telephone call early in the morning, not from the club, but from a newspaper reporter he knew, who wanted some comments from him uh, on his having been traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. And this was his first information about that. And he reacted, as you might think uh, somebody would, who was part of an organization and part of a city uh, for his entire uh, baseball career, uh, being notified by uh, a newspaper reporter that he was no longer there. And uh, he just was indignant about it. And uh, I think, you know, part of the background was that uh, I had been meeting with the players in spring training uh, every year. And uh, I almost never failed to talk about the reserve clause under which players were held as pieces of property. Mm -hmm. And I, I was honest with the players. I said it was going to be a really tough thing to, uh, to break down, uh, given the way the courts protected baseball. Uh, but, but it was clear to anybody who ever read the antitrust laws and who also read the, the player's contract, which had been drawn up by, by owner's lawyers without any input from the players, anybody who had read those documents would know that they were in violation of the law, uh, no matter what the court said. 
but I, I never uh, attempted to say that it would be easy to break through that. So, but my point is that Flood and the other players uh, all knew, you know, what, what I thought about this. So in other words, you had planted the seed that if this was tested, That's it is something that in a court of law might be able to be overturned. Well, not even that strong. I felt that it ought to be overturned, but I never predicted that mm -hmm. the courts would do it. In fact, quite the opposite. I always predicted that, that uh, given the circumstances, given the whole history uh, of the courts protecting the baseball monopoly. And going back, I'm sure, to Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Absolutely. And going back before him to the, to the 1922 mm -hmm. Supreme Court case, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I did not predict we could do it in that fashion. Uh, I simply explained that it ought to be done. I am joined tonight by Marvin Miller. Now, most people do know that Kurt Flood lost his case in the Supreme Court, but correct me if I'm wrong on this. In 1973, I believe it was, you secure players' rights to arbitration to resolve conflicts and grievances. Does that open up the door for 1975 when free agency with Messersmith and McNally actually comes into place? Did you need what you did in 73 to allow what happened in 1975? Uh, yeah, let me make one cor correction. Mm -hmm. we, we did, we made that change in 1970. Okay. Uh, 73 was the salary arbitration provision. But, okay. But 1970, for the first time, a grievance could be filed, and if not settled, would be heard and decided by an impartial arbitrator. A binding arbitrator at that point. That's right. And not by an employee of the owners, the commissioner of baseball. And that was an absolute necessity in order to get any kind of, of honest interpretation of what the contract meant. Well, now I must ask, did the owners know what they were signing or agreeing to at that point, or did they just have this idea and notion that, well, no big deal? Well, it's hard for me to know what was in their minds, but uh, given the history, they had every right to be confident that the courts would uphold whatever they did. Mm -hmm. And the courts always have, you know, to this day. Now, would that be a similar situation as well to the reserve clause when there's a one-year maximum, a one-year time that they could re-up a player at their behest? It, well, uh, you see, once we had negotiated impartial arbitration to decide these matters. Uh, you know, people would say, well, okay, uh, didn't they understand that that would be final and binding? But in this country, uh, properly, uh, even an arbitrator's decision can be subject to review by mm -hmm. the courts. And in fact, when the arbitrator, Peter Seitz, finally ruled in, in 1975 that uh, a clause which said the clubs could renew the player for one additional year meant for one additional year. Uh, they didn't. The owners didn't accept this. They went to federal court. Uh, they uh, tried to overturn the arbitrator's award. A uh, federal judge in Kansas City, though, uh, uh, took one, took one look at the uh, at the case heard what they had to say and ruled against them. Uh, obviously, he looked at signatures on the bottom of the initial paper they had signed and said, well, yeah. gentlemen, you bought into this, and so be it. Here's how it stands. Right.
Right, and they appealed that to the uh, uh, circuit court, mm -hmm. uh, which is the court just below the Supreme Court, and the circuit court unanimously upheld the federal judge and uh, turned down the owners. And at that point, and only at that point, did they stop their legal maneuvers. They did not appeal that one to the Supreme Court. Well, obviously, they knew they were defeated at that point. We're joined tonight by Marvin Mil Miller, first executive director of the Players Association. And let's go through a few more things if we can, Mr. Miller. I'm very intrigued because there is what some people would call a downside to all of this, and we'll get to that in one second. Okay. Um, Six-year free agency periods are then put into place where a player then has the right to declare themselves a free agent after that time, correct? Yeah, well, put in place is not a phrase I would use. Uh, 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 even though the, the owners lost uh, their appeals in court, uh, we still had to negotiate mm -hmm. a, a whole new system. Uh, they were still resisting uh, uh, putting into effect on a permanent basis what the arbitrator's decision uh, really required them to do. So now we need a a contract that binds the players association with the owners in an agreement and that's the number that I guess is settled upon then that six-year period that's correct among other details mm -hmm. uh, you know it, it was no simple matter right now let me ask this as a simple yes or no is arbitration the worst thing to ever happen in the minds of most owners I don't know how to answer that um, they view salary arbitration, which is a separate procedure mm -hmm. and a separate mechanism. They view that as one of the worst things that ever happened to them. And it would not surprise me if if, uh, if their feeling is that uh, uh, arbitration of grievances also is the most, one of the most terrible things that happened to them. And one of the ways we know that is there's talk that they're actually maybe going to drop the years from six to four in terms of free agency to eliminate salary arbitration. Yeah, and, you know, uh, you have to consider from their point of view, uh, you know, what happened. And uh, the, the monstrousness of the old system really escapes most people. Mm -hmm. um, it, I won't call it slavery because a player could leave. Right. But he could not leave and and carry on his his profession his occupation and uh to to really for an employer and a whole industry to own its own workforce literally own its workforce which means you can set wage at whatever you choose you could right. set revenue sharing if right everything yes to to have that kind of power um it is not surprising that they don't want. They did not want to uh, get rid of it. Um, people w with tremendous, over, overweening power like that um, cannot be expected to gracefully uh, uh, part with that power. It mm -hmm. doesn't happen in this world. Uh, it's a little like saying, you know, did, did the emperors of old with with powers. Uh, uh, with tremendous powers over, over their subjects, uh, w were they likely to simply uh, put in reforms that, that would take away that power? The answer is no. So when it's thrust upon them, when it's actually really thrust upon them, you have the reaction that you would get from owners, and to this day, some would say still exists. Absolutely. Now, Mr. Miller, a few more things, if we can. 1981. I know in 72 there was a strike, 81 there was a strike, but correct me if I'm wrong. Do you believe the 1981 strike was the most solidifying 
movement ever put forth by an association in professional sports, if not even further than outside the realm of sports? Oh, it probably was. Uh, um, I, I would not dismiss the success of the 72 strike in, in, as being a, uh, a logical building block, but uh, there is no doubt that the length uh, of the 81 strike and the, uh, the reaction of the, of the players to one proposal after another, which was designed to turn player against player, mm -hmm. and, and resisting that uh, to a point where the overwhelming majority of the players were hanging together and refusing to give in, not for anything that would happen to them, because they had been exempted. Uh, the, the owners cleverly kept making one proposal after another, so that what they were proposing and taking away free agency would not affect the then-present group of players. And they were the ones striking. And so what were they striking for? People kept saying, and newspaper reporters kept saying, uh, they're not going to get hurt. Well, the answer was they weren't about to do something that was going to hurt future players. Now, that's great in theory, but a lot of people now, as cynical as we might be in the year 2001, would probably take 15 different stances on that, even if it was factual then. This idea of not wanting my own yeah. is really prevalent, unfortunately, today in the sports fan's mind. Now, let me just get into that with you real quick. Um, what would you say to the people out there who might actually say that you were Satan reincarnated when it comes to everything that has happened in the game of baseball when they look at the bad, whether it be work stoppages, whether it be salary increases that they feel directly affect ticket prices and quite honestly, an attitude and a mindset of today's professional baseball player and professional athlete beyond baseball? Well, you've asked a lot of questions, yes. but, but uh, let me start with the fact that uh, what has happened uh, uh, to baseball is all to the good. That is, regardless of what people may think and what they've been taught, uh, baseball today is as fully competitive on the field as it ever was in the whole history of the game, if not more so. But let me counter with, and I'll play point-counterpoint with you if you don't mind, no. this, this idea that the player that I root for today in all likelihood might not be here tomorrow. I'm not rooting for right. team. All right. All right. Let, me, let me get to that. Mm -hmm. what, what bothers me about that is, is not what the fan thinks because he doesn't have his own research information. What bothers me is when reporters and and historians even outside the game say that. The fact is that before free agency, more players changed teams every year. More players changed teams every year because they were traded or sold by their owners than change teams because of free agency now. So the so-called revolving door mm -hmm. was uh, had more revolutions, more, more revolving in the old days before free agency than they do now. Now let me counterpoint again. Some would say that might be the, and I hate to use the word common when we're talking about a skill such as being able to play at the major league level, but the superstar turnover uh -huh. today, would that be... Well, I, I've had people tell me, you know, superstars didn't get traded or sold. And unfortunately, I don't have a list in mm -hmm. front of me, but let me start. Well, I know Babe Ruth would <laughs> Babe top the Ruth list. Babe Ruth was traded. Yeah. 
Roger Hornsby was traded. Was Ty Cobb ever traded? I beg your pardon? Was Ty Cobb ever traded? Or Cy Young? I don't know. Okay. Um, Frankie Frisch was traded Mm -hmm. for Roger Hornsby. Right. Uh, Lefty Grove was traded. Mickey Cochran was traded. And when the American League comes into play in the turn of the century, obviously a lot of players were then probably sold to what was now a new league as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, there is just... Look, even in modern times, Tom Seaver was traded. Yes, he was. Believe me, I was up there for it, and I know Dick Young uh, was clicking his heels on that day. Uh, Joe Torrey was traded. Uh, <laughs> Nolan Ryan was traded. Well, quite a few times, actually, and a couple of times through free agency as well. No, I understand the point. I'm just trying to right. – you do I, know that that is a mindset of a lot of people, that baseball has been ruined. And, and it doesn't bother me about mm-hmm. fans because they don't they don't have the access to, to the material. And quite honestly, fans are the ones who want to wax poetic about what could have been more so than reporters media people and the like. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, when, when a, a historian like Doris Kearns Goodwin mm-hmm. <laughs> goes on the air and talks about how in the old days <laughs> teams just stayed intact year after year, uh, her memory is faulty. Uh, and, and in addition, what she doesn't say, because maybe she doesn't know it, is that successful teams, winning teams, mm-hmm both then and now, are far more likely to stay intact because than a losing team. they're making money on top of winning. Of course. Yeah. Mr. So, Miller, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, just a few more things. I know um, I do appreciate the time, by the way, because it is a history lesson unto itself, uh, speaking to you and people that you were around at the time. Can I play a little word association with you? If I give you a, uh, someone's name, what would be the first thing that pops into your head? I'll try. Bowie Kuhn. Well, Bowie Kuhn uh, was, uh, as, as everybody who, who could look at it objectively, was an employee of the owners. He was, uh, as all commissioners of baseball were and are. They are recruited by the owners. They are paid by the owners. They are uh, almost always fired by the owners. And Bowie Kuhn was one of them. And the problem was that he would never admit that he was an employee of the owners. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he took the position that he represented players as well as owners. Well, he took the position he represented baseball, I think, which is more disheartening to fans who perhaps didn't believe that. Yeah. Well, he, he took the position, literally, he represented fans, he represented mm-hmm. players, and, and uh, there's nothing wrong with saying I'd like to. But it's a pointed position that was appointed by the owners. That's right. Yeah, Bud Selig. Well, Bud Selig uh, never understood and still doesn't understand what a conflict of interest means. As evidenced by the fact that his daughter is running the Milwaukee Brewers? Well, it's more than that. The fact that he owns it. Yeah. And this, you you must recall, is is one of the so-called have-not teams, one of the so-called small market teams with the issue in baseball being how much money can we get from the big market teams that have clubs to give to the small market teams. Now, may I ask you just very quickly, do you agree in revenue sharing in that regard? To me, it becomes a welfare state, and if you can't afford to play the game, get out of the game. Well, I I come very close to the point you just expressed. However, um, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, even the present agreement Mm -hmm. 
between the owners and the players' union provides for massive amounts of revenue sharing. People, right. people keep forgetting that. And you're also, I would assume, a player's guide. The idea of eradication of teams, the contraction of the leagues, would mean less players playing at any given time. Well, I don't know why you would contract the league. Uh, I mean, contraction, of course, could come about if there were real economic difficulty. Right. Uh, there would be teams that would go out of business. There would be teams that went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. There would be teams that couldn't sell because there would be no buyers to a losing proposition. None of that uh, uh, is to be found in baseball. Well, let me ask you then one of the age-old questions coming from the union background that you do, United Auto Workers, United Steel Workers. Do you believe the owners are lying when they're telling everybody that they're losing money? Well, they no longer really say that. Uh, that, that they were lying when they did, <laughs> but but they're really no longer saying that. Okay. Now, now the emphasis is on, uh, well, it's not competitive and we need better balance and, and so on. They, they want to really manipulate the game. And uh, I, I think what you have to recognize when people uh, like the owners or, or the people who support them say, well, they, they, they want to make changes off the field that will produce um, what they call more competitive balance on the field. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, parse, parse that sentence like you would <laughs> uh, any other sentence. And, and to me, it says, what I want to do is to manipulate things that would change winning teams so that they would be losing teams. And losing teams so that they'd be winning teams. Well, at least a meeting in the middle, but there also has to be a caveat to that sentence which says, and oh yeah, by the way, I'd like to make more money in doing that because <laughs> I believe players' salaries would be lowered at that point. I could probably still so charge the same amount of money for tickets. Therefore, my bottom line increases. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. But, but the manipulation of the result of the games on the field is what frankly shocks me. And the idea of if I do my job better than you seems to be eliminated in that scenario. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Mr. Miller, last thing for you. Do you believe you're eligible for the Hall of Fame? <laughs> well, when you say eligible, mm -hmm. uh, look, that's for them to decide. For for years, the Veterans Committee, which deals with non-player uh, inductions, mm -hmm. uh, took the position that I was not. By a rule, I believe that's 6B in the bylaws of baseball. No, no. The rule, uh, as, as currently interpreted, is that I am eligible. As a matter of fact, the Veterans Committee, for years, hid, hid behind the subterfuge that I was not eligible. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to understand what they were saying. They were saying that the executive director of the Players' Union, with members only in baseball, right, was not a baseball executive. And I believe that is part of Rule 6B, where they try to, at least in theory, determine who is eligible and who is not. But my question would be, do you know if your name has ever been brought up for nomination in the Veterans Committee? This year. It was. Yeah, because I, I'm told both through the grapevine mm -hmm. that the board of directors of the Hall of Fame insisted upon it. Well, I can't find one person. I know there were some owners out there and probably some relatives of owners who have passed on who would say Marvin Miller over my dead body, but I can't find a player of note. I cannot find an executive currently in the system, unless, again, of course, they've got an axe to grind with the way that this system has been played out over the 30-plus you know, years, who has not said that you do not belong in the Hall of Fame. 
Well, thank you. But uh, let me just say one thing on that. Uh, I don't believe that there should be a struggle for for honors. <laughs> I think, you know, you, you struggle for things that ought to be changed and so on. But one cannot struggle and say, I deserve to be honored. In other words, no campaigning for Marvin Miller. It's either I am in or no, I'm not. That's right. Well, Mr. Miller, uh, as I said, a history lesson. I, I've talked to people on a whole bunch of different sides of the issue of why is this game in the state it is? And quite honestly, as I told you earlier, uh, the word Satan has been used when <laughs> your name has been mentioned. But people do believe, I think, in theory at least, if they get by what their problems are with the game, the ability for a man to go and make a living in a manner that is fair and equitable has something that only came about since the Players Association was actually taken over by yourself and the changes that they made. Right. Well, thank you. I, I think just just one word mm -hmm. on, on the people who, who worry about the state of the game. Uh, you have to remember that, looked at currently, uh, there are more baseball franchises than ever before, mm -hmm. which in more cities, uh, there are, that means, therefore, more players, uh, uh, more, more coaches, more managers, more trainers, more scouts, more everything, that never before has the total revenue that these clubs take in been this high. Never before have there been this many people in paid attendance going to baseball games that baseball paid attendance now exceeds the attendance of the other major uh, team games combined. Right, and some would argue dates and some would argue the amount of cities, but I understand what you're saying. The revenues have increased because people have a demand for the game. Well, just, just one point, and then, uh, I don't want to take your time. When, when the union started, the combined revenue of all the Major League Baseball clubs was less than $50 million a year. Mm -hmm. Last year, it was $3 billion. That's a terrible catastrophe. <laughs> well, not in a capitalistic society, that's for sure. Mr. Miller, last two things. Uh, do you believe there'll be a work stoppage after this current season? <laughs> well, uh, it's, a, it's a funny question mm -hmm. to ask me because, uh, you know, in 1972 in the first strike in the history of professional sports. Mm -hmm. That's, that dispute arose because of the union proposals to change the pension plan. For the last 30 years, ever since the 72 strike, the last 30 years, every single stoppage has arisen from demands of the owners and not the players. Well, I'd have to look into that. Because, not that I don't trust you, right. but I'm going to have people who call me and are going to tell me, how could you let him get away with that? That one I might have to look at a little every, bit more closely. Every single dispute. Now, uh, so when you ask me what will happen, mm -hmm. I would have to know what's in the minds of the owners. Right. Uh, and, and that's interesting because in any other industry, any other industry, when there are people concerned about what would happen when a collective bargaining agreement expires, their whole thought and their whole concentration would be on what is it that the union is going to be demanding? What is it that the employees through their union are going to be insisting upon? What is it that they might ask for that is serious enough to 
create a dispute and a stoppage. In baseball, the only question is, what is it that the owners are going to demand? Mm -hmm. And how serious are they going to be? Well, we can go on and on about a whole bunch of different things, including this idea of collusion, including this idea of how many mindsets are really, is baseball an umbrella with 30 people who actually just work under that umbrella or are there 30 different interests? And I trust, should it be something that baseball is exempt from or not? I mean, these are all issues that could certainly be talked about, and I know at great length. If you don't mind, Mr. Miller, somewhere down the road, I would like to maybe catch up with you and discuss those issues in particular. Well, I would I would have fun discussing it, and I've enjoyed this. And uh, uh, if, if you can, I'd love to have a tape of what we've done. I will absolutely do that, sir, as I do archive everything, and I appreciate it. And so do the, the people here in the city of Atlanta and beyond. And I, I mean it. I will get back to you, and I do want to discuss some of those other issues because coming from the background you do, having a role you serve certainly in baseball in particular might give a little insight into some of those things we discussed, some of the things that, quite honestly, I've never understood, collusion and antitrust and some other things. It might be nice to get a little bit more insight. We will do that somewhere down the road. I would be happy to talk with you. Mr. Miller, I appreciate it. I'm going to put you on hold for one second, and we'll get out. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Marvin Miller right there on Tardball. Around Hertford, North Carolina today, the talk was about hometowner Jim Catfish Hunter, who flew up to the Big Apple last night, signed some papers, and came home with a reported $3,750,000. In return, all he has to do is throw baseballs for the New York Yankees. When the arbitrator finally agreed with the union that an owner could only control a player for one year, the time had come to negotiate a whole new system and the owners panicked they could not picture living under a system in which every player would be a free agent every year and even though the arbitrator's decision gave the players the right to be free agents every year uh, we felt that it was in the interest of the game and the players that that supply of free agents not be so great every year and that there be an eligibility requirement. We started with very little. I won't say nothing, but very little. You weren't going to have a career where you could retire and be happy, but we had very little, so we stuck together, and it worked on our behalf, you know, with multi-year contracts that they didn't used to give out, and guarantees which they didn't used to give, so I was now beginning to see the fruits of our labor, the benefits of sticking together and going with the Players Association. look at it as it's the players union it's not Don Fears or Marvin Miller's union it's the players and the players have a voice they get listened to but we were trying to um, gain things not lose things and that's what Marvin always uh, talked about once you gave something back you never get it again so we always try to make things better at that time we were playing like 22 days without a day off flying from coast to coast i mean just all the little things it was not all about money a lot of the time money, 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 money. 
secret of, of, uh, of the success of the Major League Baseball players. You know, I said it's not a secret. The solidarity of that membership through the years. You know, I, I've worked for many unions and know about many others. And, uh, my whole adult life, I've been in labor management relations, and I don't know of another union with a record like that. Treat the union as their union, not my union, not anybody else's union.